scriptures to the book of Philippians. We return now to the book of Philippians and uh, begin our exposition. Last week we took the time to introduce the book, get a little bit familiar with it. We, um, we considered the salutation there in the first couple of verses, which kind of gave us a framework, a context. And so we'll be considering this morning verses 3 through verse, really through verse 8. We're going to touch on verse 9, and then that's where we'll pick up again next week is verse 9. So what I would like to invite you to do, again, first, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 1, I will read aloud verses 3 through 9 as you follow along in your copy of the scriptures. And then we will ask for God's help uh, as we consider this his word. For Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. God is speaking. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. Lord, we thank you for the time that we have to spend in your word. We pray that even now as we consider it, we would do so with diligent minds that are eager to learn the meaning of the text and to apply it to us. But Lord, we know that we can't do that in and of ourselves because it is your Holy Spirit that takes your holy word and applies it to us. And so we pray that the Spirit would be the preacher of this hour and that you would use your word in our hearts to change us by it. In Christ's precious name, amen. In 1765, Pastor John Fawcett, it's spelled F-A-W-C-E-T-T, -T, not Fawcett like that kind of Fawcett, but John Fawcett was called to pastor a small congregation in rural England, in Waynesgate, England. He labored diligently in that small place for about seven years. His salary there from that church was so meager that, that they, could, they could barely make ends meet. They, they kind of hobbled through those seven years, but, but they were richly rewarded in that the people that they ministered to were gracious and loving and warm people. It was about seven years into his stint there in Waynesgate, England, the Dr. Fawcett received a call from a, from a larger church in London asking him to come and to be their pastor. And they considered it, they weighed it, and they decided to accept the invitation to become the pastor of this much larger church in England. His few possessions were being loaded on a wagon for them to make the move to London. And and as his possessions were being loaded up, he and his wife were outside, and, and family after family, person after person from their little congregation came by and just, and just wept and, and, and told them how much they appreciated them and told them how much they loved, loved them and, and, and had enjoyed their ministry. And, and uh, just again and again, they were reminded 
through these tearful goodbyes of the good seven years that they had spent ministering. But also in that same context, they often pleaded with them to reconsider their move. After some time of this, Mrs. Fawcett was, was touched to the heart with the people's love for them. And she turned to her husband and said, I, I, can't, I can't bear this anymore. They, they need us here. And at that same time, God had been working in Pastor Fawcett's heart, and he was, he was feeling the same burden, the same tug. And so he turned to those that were loading the wagon, and he told them to unload it. And there they would stay for many more years. It was upon the occasion of this experience that Pastor Fawcett sat and penned the hymn that we just sang together. Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. As we consider this text of Scripture this morning in Philippians, we ask ourselves, what is the tie that binds together God's people? What unites a local church? Now, when we look at this text of Scripture, verses 3 through 8, really seems very introductory. Right? It seems very much like, like Paul is just kind of giving them a greeting, and so it's tempting to just kind of pre- breeze through this introduction as, as not really important to the text, but, but it teaches us a lot. It teaches us a lot about what is yet to come in the book, and that is the topic of joyful unity. Because even as Paul greets these people, we see that there is a central cause, there is a mission that joyously ties Paul to these people and ties this church together. Some years ago, I read the story of a motorcyclist who was in a bad wreck, and he was pinned underneath a car. The first responders had not arrived yet, and the car flared up in flame. And the crowd that was standing nearby knew that this this pinned motorcyclist would surely be killed if if something wasn't done. The crowd quickly sprang into action, and they, they gathered around the corner of the car where he was pinned, and they lifted the car up and pulled him literally out of the burning and saved his life. Now, in that moment, those people didn't know each other. They didn't know each other's names. They they may have had nothing in common prior to that crisis experience, but in that moment, they were united together by the cause of saving someone. May I submit to us this morning that there is a similar cause that unites together God's people. And the urgency of that cause, that purpose, that mission, is that of the gospel. The gospel is at the center of Christian unity. The gospel is at the center of Christian unity. So how does this happen? How does the gospel unite us together? How does it come to be that the gospel is at the center of Christian unity? Well, the gospel is at the center of Christian unity for several reasons that we see in this text of Scripture. And as we consider verses 3 and 4, we see the first of them. John, do you have any additional handouts? If anyone doesn't have one, we do have some handouts 
um, you can take notes with. If you just flag John down if you don't already have one. I think maybe most of you do. The gospel is at the center of Christian unity first because the gospel evokes thanksgiving. This is what we see in verses 3 and 4 where Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you with joy. So Paul's uh, thanksgiving is linked to this unity that he has with them in verses 3 and 4. And there's a few things that we notice about this, um, this unity, and that is that it is consistent. So in verse 3 he says, upon every Remembrance. Now consider the text carefully because the construction is very important. It is emphatic and it stresses totality rather than frequency. In other words, in other words, he's not saying every time I think of you, but all the time as I think of you. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. But what else characterizes this thanksgiving, and that is that it is, it is joyful. In what spirit does Paul offer his prayer? Notice the end of verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with what? You have it? Are you looking at it? Verse 4. Always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with? Joy. With joy. Right? And that, of course, is the theme of the book. Paul is offering thanksgiving. It is a joy-filled thanksgiving because of his relationship with them. Paul has an affectionate attachment to these believers. Notice some of the language that he uses. Look at verse 7. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you because I have, because I pulled you in my heart. Notice verse 8. He says, I long for you all with deep affection of Jesus Christ. These feelings are because of Christ's work, he links it to, which heightens it to more than just a simple human sentiment. Certainly it includes a strong emotional connection, but it goes much deeper than that. So we learn that the gospel evokes thanksgiving, consistent thanksgiving, joyful thanksgiving. We also see that the gospel is at the center of Christian unity because the gospel builds effective partnerships. We see this in verse 5. So for what is Paul thankful? Verse 5, Paul is thankful specifically for what? For their fellowship in the gospel. Good. Now let's talk for a moment about the word fellowship that we see in verse 5. It's a very strong term in the original language. Right? Even if you're not excited about Greek and Hebrew, if you're not excited about the original language, I think this is an important word for you to know um, because there really is no good English equivalent for it. Um, this word is, is in the Greek, is koinonia, and you may have heard that term before at some point. This is, this is biblical fellowship in the New Testament. And, and it encompasses a lot more than what we typically mean by fellowship when we say it in English. It's a very, very rich New Testament word. It includes the idea of partnership, participation, joining together in common cause. 
Now, we still use this word in English in the same way, but not, not a lot. It's really, the, the way we usually use the word is kind of a shadow of what it, it used to mean. Generally, when we say fellowship, we just mean kind of socializing, but with a nice Christian word to it, right? I mean, that's what we mean. You know, chit-chatting, that's fellowship. And, and, and certainly it's not wrong to use it in that way, but, but I just want you to understand that when you see this word in the pages of the New Testament, that is not what it means. It does not mean getting together and chit-chatting, all right? Um, sometimes you may have heard of a fellowship at a university. Have you ever heard it used in that context before? So-and-so is a fellow at such-and-such university. He has been awarded a fellowship at, at... Now, I'm not an expert on universities around the world, but my understanding is, and you can, you can correct me if my understanding is, is flawed, but as I understand it, British universities work a little different than American universities in that the professors are not merely employees of the college. At a certain point, um, they become fellows. And those fellows have, have uh, a joint cause together in the, in the direction of the, in the, uh, the, the administration, the direction of the university itself, all right? So what makes them fellows is not that they get together and they chit-chat about Shakespeare or the planets, right? They may do that. They may get together and chit-chat about their subject material, but that's not what makes them fellows. They are fellows because they have joint interests. They have common cause. They have partnership in the university. Do you see the difference? That gets closer to the meaning and the way it's used in the pages of Scripture. So, some of you in your translations have a different word. Instead of saying fellowship in the gospel, does anybody have a different translation in front of them? Instead of your fellowship in the gospel in verse 5, do you, read, do you have something different? Who's got a different translation? Who's, who's got an ESV? What, what is it in Spanish? Okay, communion. Okay, it's kind of the same. All right, some of you, if you're using an ESV, I think the ESV actually says partnership in the gospel. They're trying to kind of push towards a little, a little different shade of meaning there, and that's the idea. It's, it's this togetherness. It's this commonness in the gospel, your partnership in the gospel. So in the Greek-speaking world, and I'm going to spend a lot of time on this word because it's an important word, not just to understand Philippians, but really as you're reading through all of the New Testament epistles and how it is used here. Right? This word was used in the Greek-speaking world for a business partnership. Right? So if, so if Bob and Tim in, in the ancient world you know, got together and they said, hey, let's buy a boat and start a fishing venture, a, a fishing business, they were said to be in koinonia, in fellowship. The word actually is sometimes used, and um, uh, maybe, you, maybe you have a copy of the, uh, of the Apocrypha on your shelf at home. Um, maybe you have an original 1611 King James, and you can open to 3 Maccabees chapter 4, and you'll see that this word is actually used in respect to the marriage bond. Specifically, it says young woman who just entered into the bridal chamber to share 
koinonia, right? So it's used actually as a euphemism for the physical union of marriage, right? It is, it is the idea of, of, of coming together in common cause. There is, there is this unity that takes place, all right? So the idea is, is rich. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar that some of you might be familiar with, says this. It is a sacrificial commitment to a shared vision. This is common life, common vision. So what then is the vision? What is the shared goal for your fellowship, for your common cause, for your partnership in, verse 5, what? In what? Fellowship in? the gospel right that is what they have in common the good news of jesus christ there are many things that can bring a group of people together but nothing is stronger than the gospel so what is the gospel well we go through this probably every week and we should we are reminded that we are separated from God because we are sinners. We are guilty of doing that which violates God's will. We do the things that we ought not to do. We fail to do the things that we ought to do, and that is called sin. And because of that, we are separated from God. Not just in this life are we separated from him, but, but we are deserving of being separated from him for all eternity in a terrible place called hell. And that is what I deserve. That is what you deserve because of our sin. But Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came from heaven to earth. He lived a perfect life, not a life like you and I live, but a perfect life that, that pleased the Father. And then he offered himself as a sacrifice, not for his own sin, for he had none, but for our sin. He died on a cross. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And when he rose again, he signaled that he has the authority to offer forgiveness of sin to all who will come to him in faith and repentance. Faith is depending on Christ's work alone for salvation. Repentance is, is the flip side of that same coin. It is turning from my way to depend on him alone for Jesus Christ. You can't have faith without repentance or repentance without faith. And so when one comes to him in faith and repentance, he is made new. He is, as we just sang about, given the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and, and that person's sin is then placed on Christ, who paid the penalty for our sin. If you've never done that, you can today be made right with God, not only for, 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 for this life, but for all eternity, because Jesus took your place. And the way that that transaction takes place is through faith and repentance. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ will make us new through his sacrifice as we enter into it through faith and repentance. That is good news. That is wonderful news. The saving power of Jesus Christ. And that is what makes a people united together because they have been made right with God. So when people trust in Christ and they are born anew, they now have a special bond together. So what unites a church? If you've ever taken our new membership class, which I think most, if not all of you have, right? We start with this. What creates a church? The gospel creates a church. It's not social convention. It's not status. It's not wealth. It's not power. 
It's not, it's not any form of demography. It is not race, ethnicity, national origin, similar upbringing, political orientation. It's not our common interests. It's not our common occupation. It is not our school choices. It is not a host of any other superficial thing that you can fill in that blank. What unites a people together in a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is paramount. And that's what we should strive for. Compared to the global church throughout history, the modern North American church is very disconnected. And this trend of lack of commitment and super, superficial relationships is kind of fed by our culture. We, we resist really what a local church should be. But we must be actively striving to be a united people because we are in fellowship in the biblical sense because of the gospel. If we go one step further, it's not just the fact that they've all been saved that they have in common. Right? They're not just united in the gospel, and by that, he simply means you've all gotten saved. The, the language, particularly the word in, fellowship in the gospel, implies an ongoing joint participation in the mission of the gospel, the propagation of the gospel. Notice that verse 5 says this, from the first day until now. It's not merely that they got saved and somehow they had this mystical unity because of a shared salvation. No, no, they are now actively, ongoing, united in the effort of the gospel. There's always kind of this tension that people talk about, about inward fellowship in the local church and outward evangelistic focus. And, 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 the, and the, the thinking is, the concern is that, you know, too much emphasis on one might cause us to neglect the other, right? Too much inward focus will cause us to be insular, and we don't, we don't reach those that are around us. Or, or reaching those that are around us and focusing on that will, will cause us to be less connected. But notice here that the believers were united together by their common interest in spreading the gospel. They're united not just by their common experience with the gospel, but by their common mission in the gospel. You ever been on a mission trip? I hope that if you've never had that opportunity, I hope at some point in your life you have the opportunity to go on a mission trip. And some of the sweetest joys of ministry have come um, through leading people in our church to another place to focus on a specific ministry for a week or a week and a half or two weeks or whatever. There are special bonds that are formed among those people and those are profound bonds. And it's not just because they have fun together. I mean, they do have fun together and that certainly unites us, but, but there's something about this shared opportunity to sleep on a concrete floor or to to bucket flush a toilet or to shower with you know, uh, sun-warmed water off a reserve tank on the ceiling 
or to fight the same bugs. Like there's something about that that unites people together in a very special way. But even more than that, these are people who have joined together to accomplish a purpose of giving the gospel to others, to loving and serving people as Christ has done and seeing the fruit of their labor, labor together. That is what unites the people together, this common mission, this common cause. Certainly there are many good reasons to be involved in your church. But the fact is, you can really only form this type of fellowship in the gospel with those with whom you are serving. Those that you serve together with will have a special place in your heart. And so if you're not investing in others and serving with others in this congregation, you will not experience this kind of fellowship that Paul is describing here. Sometimes people will complain that, you know, the church seems disconnected or they, they haven't found any solid friendships. The, the reality is if you want biblical fellowship, partnership in the gospel, you must be serving together in the cause of the gospel with others. So fellowship doesn't happen because of a program that we institute. This merely fosters an environment where common life, gospel unity, fellowship, can grow. So we see that the gospel builds effective partnerships. Now let me just take a, a, a sidebar here just for, for just a minute and, and let you know about how, how we think about something here at, at North Hills. Um, our men, uh, a few weeks ago, were discussing an article that we read together that gives this, this taxonomy of tier one, tier two, tier three issues, right? So these would be primary issues, secondary issues, tertiary issues, and how do we think about uh, prioritizing those, particularly in respect to fellowship. And so this author described kind of tier one issues as gospel issues, issues related to the gospel itself, core to the message of Christianity. Tier two, he described as those things which are necessary for us to cooperate together in a local assembly. So, so there must be things that we would have agreement on to function together in a local church. And then tier three, he described as things that are kind of like everything else downstream from that. Right? So all of these other things that are not, are not primary issues that you may even disagree with other people within your congregation about, but that they're not, they're not falling into those first two categories. I think it's important for us to understand that there is such a thing as tier one or primary or gospel Issues, and we cannot have Christian unity with those who do not believe the gospel. You say, well, duh, of course. No, no, think about it for a moment. If someone denies the person and work of Jesus Christ as it is taught in the New Testament, they do not believe the gospel. And so it would be disingenuous for us to call that person a brother, to enter into common gospel cause with that person, or with that denomination, or with that public figure, and pretend as if we believe the same gospel. If someone denies the nature of Scripture, which teaches us the gospel, that is a gospel issue. So we cannot enter into Christian unity 
with someone who denies the nature of Scripture itself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. So there are many in our in our in our country who would call themselves Christian in the in the broad kind of socio, sociological use of the term. They have Christ somewhere in there, but it's not the same Jesus. Right. So a couple weeks ago, I mentioned those that teach that Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead. Okay, is that integral to the gospel? Absolutely. You cannot have the gospel with the dead Jesus. Am I clear? <laughs> so if, if someone denies the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, I cannot say, okay, well, we're brothers in Christ because we're not. They do not teach the same gospel. How can I say I have koinonia, fellowship, common cause in the gospel with someone who does not? So this principle works kind of a positive and kind of a negative. We focus really on the positive, right? We should be united together because of the gospel, but this also excludes, does it not? It means that those who are outside of that sphere of what the Bible teaches regarding the gospel are not those with whom I have koinonia, I have biblical fellowship. Now, should we be kind to those people? Absolutely. Should we be respectful and gracious? Absolutely. But we must not be disingenuous and describe those as, uh, embrace them as if they were gospel teachers when they are not. So an important kind of sidebar, the gospel builds effective partnerships. The gospel also causes Christian unity because it elicits a Godward confidence. A Godward confidence, verse 6. We say Godward because his confidence is in God's word. When he commends them, he ties it back to the gospel, which is at work with them. Notice verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work, the wording that he uses here means inherently good. So what he's referring to is salvation that began at conversion. He who began this, this inherently good work in you at the moment of salvation will do what? Will complete it. The, the idea is to continue it until its ultimate completion. Until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words... God has begun a good work in you, and he's going to keep on doing it. Paul says, I'm confident of this. Even though he rejoiced in the Philippians' generous gift and the evidence of their spiritual growth, his confidence did not ultimately rest on the Philippian believers, but on God, who would keep them and enable them to reach the ultimate goal. So ultimately, our unity is because of what God is doing. What God is doing in us and through us, it brings joy to Paul to reflect on what God is still doing in the Philippian believers. And so we need to be reminded that God is at work in one another. And just like Paul was God's agent of change, so we too are agents of change in one another's lives. So this is that idea of spiritual mentoring that we talk about so often, right? Investing in the life of others. That is an act of faith. When you pour yourself into someone else, when you train someone else, when you disciple them, when you mentoring, mentor them, that is an act of faith. And it's not an act of faith in that person, 
ultimately, but in God, who is at work. So how does that relate to unity in this passage? Not only do those with whom you serve have a special place in your heart, but those whom you disciple will always have a special place in your hearts. And so that's why we emphasize life, touching life, discipleship here. Right? The, the, the pouring yourself into someone else will unite you with them in a very special way. And so I would ask us, are we working to do that? Are you trying to do that? That life-touching life discipleship. Have you talked to that unbelieving friend about having a Bible study? Have you made time in your weekly schedule to meet with someone regularly for discipleship? The gospel elicits a confidence, but it's not a confidence in that person. It's a confidence in God himself. And then there's a response. There's a response, an application that comes out in fervent prayer. The gospel is the center of, un- center of Christian unity because the gospel prompts frequent prayer. And that is one of the applications of this passage. Now, this is where he begins in verse 9. So beginning in verse 9, he articulates his prayer, and this I pray. And the following verses are the prayer that he prays for the Philippian believers. We're not going to spend our time there this morning. We're going to come back to that uh, probably next week and explore Paul's specific prayer for the Philippian believers. But I just want us to note this morning that that is the response. That is one of the ways that Christian unity is fostered as we pray for one another. We are in a special bond with each other. We are in a special bond with other true believers in Jesus Christ. We are united together because of the gospel. The gospel is center to Christian unity because it prompts thanksgiving for one another. Because it fosters effective partnership. Because it elicits a Godward confident and because it prompts frequent prayer. You ever been on a cruise? My wife and I have been on a couple of them, and we really, really enjoy them. It's kind of neat. You go on a cruise, and you meet all of these people from all different places uh, around the world, and, and you strike up conversations, and you get to you get to know people, and, hey, what, what excursion did you do? And you can kind of compare notes about, about who did what and what you enjoyed doing and, and swap. Now, it, it, you know, it's enjoyable to get to know other people. And you have kind of a special bond, right? You have a special bond because, you know, you're headed the same place. You're on the same ship. You're getting to know, so you can form some friendships in those environments. Maybe you've been in the service. If you've ever been in the Navy, you might have taken a cruise. But it was a very different kind of cruise, right? Uh, It's funny to hear Navy guys refer to their cruise, right? That's not the same kind of cruise. Do you get to meet different people from all over the place? Yeah. Are you all headed the same place? Yeah. Do you have similar shared experiences? Sure. But what unites a bunch of sailors together on a battleship is a totally different category than what unites together a bunch of cruisers who are there for their leisure. I mean, if you're in battle together, if you are you're crammed together in very uncomfortable quarters, if you have the threat, even if you're in wartime especially, Right? If you have the threat of, of constant threat of attack, you train together, you work together, you prepare for everything going badly together. You grow afraid 
together. You have victories together. Let me just tell you that the bond that comes from that kind of a cruise is way stronger than these mere social interactions that we have when we're on a leisure cruise. I think sometimes we think about the church and we think about Christian fellowship in terms of like a Royal Caribbean cruise. We all happen to be going to the same place. We're all going to heaven. So, yep, we're we're united. We're in this thing together. No, no, no. It's not that kind of unity. It's more akin to a battleship. where We are together in common cause, the gospel. Our mission is that of the same, and it is the gospel that brings us together. May God help us to recognize and to foster the unity that comes the gospel. The gospel is at the center of Christian unity. Lord, we thank you for these moments that we've had together. We thank you for your word that reminds us of the gospel that unites us together. And we pray that we would foster the right kind of biblical unity.